I don't think it's just me. I hope it's not just me. I, I hope you've noticed. It's just remarkable and, and we must not miss it. Uh, have you noticed? I, I hope you've noticed. What am I hoping you've noticed? I'm hoping you've noticed that the Bible is more and more significant for us and for our times. Now, when I say that, people say, well, what do you mean? You don't think it was significant? No, no, don't, don't, don't go there. Just hear what I'm saying. It's amazing to me how much the Bible is speaking clearly to us during these days. There's turmoil all around us. There's stresses and strains. There's confusion like we never expected to see. And the Bible is coming alive for us in ways we need to notice and must not miss. So have you noticed, I hope you've noticed that the Bible is speaking to us and to our times in a way that will guide us through them and help us come out on the other side, on the right side of everything. We need to give thanks for the Bible. We really do. It is a great book, and I hope you are thankful for God's great gift of the, of the Bible. It speaks volumes to us, and we need to hear it. I hope you're a part of a Bible study. If you're not, I want to encourage you to join a Bible study or start a Bible study. Get a half a dozen friends and start studying the Bible together. And what I mean by that is just have a conversation around the Bible and what it says and what it means to us in these days. What is God telling us that he wants us to do? What's God telling us he wants us to stay away from? The Bible really is speaking to our time. And I know it's a cliche from long ago, but it's really time time for us to get back to the Bible. So I hope you're noticing that, and I hope you're a part of that, and I hope you're making the Bible an important part of your life so God can speak to you and help you during these times. Well, this is Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is our program, Faith Is, and we're trying to strengthen and deepen and stretch our faith in God's direction. We want to be His people in every sense of that word, and we do that by focusing on the Bible. And I hope you do that more than just occasionally. I hope you do that more than just when you find yourself in a jam, although that's a good place to go when you find yourself in a jam. So many people, it's been my observation, when they get in a jam, they run away from the Bible instead of running to it. But we want to focus on how God can help us and the message he has in the pages of the Bible, because it is remarkable the benefit we get when we tap into God's wisdom and we hear his voice and we allow him to guide us. And by that, I don't mean that we try to tell him how it is. We let him tell us how it is so that we can align ourselves to him. Too many people expect God to line up to them. Don't fall into that trap. That's why the Bible is so useful. It tells us what God is thinking and helps us align our lives with God's will, God's way. So I hope you'll, I hope you'll hear what I'm saying here and get involved in some Bible study. I hope you'll find some friends. It could be there are some people you know that have had the same idea, and they just don't know how to start. And, you know, you may not know how to start, but could I say just start, pray, 
Ask God to show you how to study the Bible. Ask God to speak to you from its pages. It is coming alive, I'm telling you, in these days, and it contains exactly what we need for life and for living, especially now. So get a Bible, join a Bible study, begin to let the Bible speak words of wisdom, truth into your life, comfort, guidance, hope, and peace. God wants to do that for us. You know, really, that's, that brings us to the beginning of the Bible focus we want to have for this week. And, and it's to remind us that, that God's vision for us is typically way more expansive than our vision for us. You know, and that's what the Bible can help us with. It can help us lift up our eyes to the world that God is opening up for us, the, the truth He wants to lead us into, the way He wants to provide for our lives, for our well-being. It's way more than what we tend to think. We tend to think in, in smaller chunks, and God thinks in dramatically larger ones. And we're going to take a look at that this week from the pages of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we want to take a look at this for a couple of reasons. One is because it continues the story we started last week, and it helps us follow and trace the, the role of, of, of the house of God in, in Israel and what that meant in terms of a physical sense, but also what it meant in terms of the way God was thinking about that. And then we're also going to shift and take a look at the New Testament and take a look at what, what amazing vision God has for us and our time, and, and how he really is, without a doubt, the solution to the stresses and strains that we're going through, the divisions in families, the divisions in, dare I say, some churches, the divisions in, in neighborhoods, the divisions in countries. God has a vision for how he wants us to be put back together, to be, yeah, we need to use that word, word reconciled, reconciled to each other. And we can be. So let's start in with, with this story of David from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And at this point in the story, David has become king, and we talked about his efforts to bring the ark back to the city of David, what we now call Jerusalem, and how it had been put in its proper place. And then in the first part of chapter 7, which is the next chapter after the story of the ark returning to the city of David, Jerusalem, we read these words in verse 1 from the New International Version. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Well, the story continues, and we won't read all of the next verses, but, but let's set the stage. Let's understand what's going on here. David had been battling enemies, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God. He had lived through the stress and the strain of um, the transition from King Saul to his kingship. Now he was installed as king. And it says that when he was settled in his palace, the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. That's very significant because it wasn't just that David had, had won the battles that God asked him to fight. It was that God had given him rest, peace from his enemies. 
you know, that could be our prayer for each other today is that God would give us rest from the things that we struggle with, from the things that, that we have to deal with. And I pray that God would give you rest. We need that rest from God. Because when we have an opportunity to rest, when we are able to kind of settle in and, and take a look around and get perspective, then we can begin to think of some things that, that matter more than the continual battle against this difficulty or that difficulty. And so David, having been given this gift from God, this gift of rest, this gift of peace, realizes that the ark of God still needs a better place. And he frames it in that he has this really nice house, this, we might call it a palace, scriptures do. He has this nice place to live, but, but God's house remains unbuilt. And, and it's in a tent, God's ark is in a tent. And David realizes that something's not right there and he wants to fix it. And so he speaks to the prophet Nathan and Nathan says, well, do whatever you have in mind. The Lord is with you and uh, leaves it that Nathan goes away. And lo and behold, God says to Nathan, um, just a second, son, we got to talk about this, what you said to David. And, and God begins to talk to Nathan and give him some instructions for David. And, and one of the things that God says is that, you know, I never asked for a cedar house. Wasn't important to me. Uh, tell David, no, I never asked for that. Uh, in essence, God is saying, don't worry about that. God goes on to say to Nathan that he's to tell David some important things. First of all is that, David, I, God, promoted you. And of course, we remember what that's about. That was David, who was a shepherd, youngest in his family, out taking care of the sheep, and was sent by his father to check on his older brothers who were in God's army with King Saul. And process of all of that, David took on Goliath, and all of a sudden, David is becoming important, and he begins to rise in importance. All because... Before that, God had anointed David to be king. Remember, Samuel went to the household, had David brought before him, and he anointed him to be the next king of Israel. And so God is reminding David here through the prophet Nathan that I promoted you. He goes on to say, now remember, David, God says to him, I have been with you. Wow, that's a great statement, isn't it? I have been with you. So God says to David, I have promoted you, and I have been with you. And finally, God says, and I destroyed your enemies. And there's another big statement. You know, sometimes we think we win our own battles. But here, God was very clear talking to David. David, you didn't win your own battles. Not at all. I destroyed your enemies. And that's a big deal. That's a very big deal, what God has done for David here. But, but God doesn't stop there. He's got more. And he says to Nathan, there's, there's more here. I want you to understand. And so he begins to lay out the things that he will now do for David. So not only has God given him rest from his enemies, and not only is God reminding David of all of the things that have already happened, that God has been with him, that God promoted him, that God destroyed his enemies, 
But now God says, I will make your name great. Well, that's interesting because David was already king, but, but God goes on to say, I will make your name great. God goes on to say, I will give my people a safe place to live. They won't be bothered or oppressed by evildoers. They will have a safe place to live, security, because I give it to them. And I will give all of you, and he says it again, rest from your enemies. Now, it's important because they didn't need to be harassed by people. They didn't need to be oppressed by evildoers. They needed assurance that God was giving them this safe place to live, and he would give them rest from their enemies. He goes on to say to David, I will build your household. Well, that's a pretty big deal. I will build up your household, David, and I will raise up your descendant and establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for me. So there you go. There's a sequence of events. David is going to have rest from his enemies. God is going to build up his household and raise up a descendant. God will establish that descendant's kingdom, and then that descendant will build a house for God. So in terms of the next steps, we understand what's about to happen because we're aware of the story. What, what that means is that, that, and it's a lot more involved than my just saying this, what that means is David's son Solomon will be raised up and his kingdom will be established and Solomon will build a house for God what we would call a temple for God. So David is hearing all of this from God. God is giving him all of these promises of what's going to unfold in the future. And he sums it up at the end of the little section we're looking at around verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. He sums it up by saying to David, I will establish his throne forever. Again, referring to David's descendant. David wanted to build a house. God's going to build his household. All kings were concerned about their descendants, and God says, I'll take care of that and establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Now, here's the, here's the amazing thing that just jumped out at me when I was looking at this, talking about how, de- how we think in terms of of ideas for God, but God thinks way beyond us. And God wants to to expand his kingdom in ways that we don't tend to be able to comprehend. And, And sometimes they're different than what we hope them to be. And in this case, look at the contrast. David started out this section of scripture in this story by expressing his desire to build a house for God because God's ark the Ark of the Covenant was only in a tent, and he, David, lived in this fine palace. And so it started out that he wanted to build a house for God because he recognized that something wasn't right here when he had something that he had not provided for God. So he wanted to build a house. But notice by the end of this passage, by the end of the part we're studying, verse 14, we discover that God had something far beyond that idea far beyond. See, God wanted to establish not just a house for himself. God wanted to establish a dynasty of righteous kings. Now, we read this, and we we understand pretty easily that this is talking about 
what's going to unfold for David and his family in the next few years, in the next kingship, and maybe a little bit beyond that. But God is expressing that, that he wants these righteous kings to rule for a lot longer time. He wants these righteous kings to, to last forever. And it's very interesting, very interesting how that all worked out. From building a house of God instead of a tent, God says, I want to establish a dynasty of righteous kings. Now, this section is sometimes called the Davidic covenant. That's a kind of a fancy word. It's, it's, the idea is that it's a covenant that God makes with David. And really, it, it amounts to God ma making promises to David and, and expecting David and his family and the, all the people to live the right kind of lives so that these things can play out. And so this kingdom, righteous kingdom, can be established forever. Because that was a promise made by God to David to establish his kingdom forever. But here's the really immediate, uh, the, the, the interesting thing. We know from the rest of the story that Israel was not faithful to God. They messed up over and over again. But we also know that God did fulfill his promise to establish David's throne forever. For there was a king born years and years later that ultimately fulfilled that promise that David's kingdom would reign forever. There would be a, a righteous king that would rule forever because there was a baby born in Bethlehem baby born from the line of David. His name was Jesus. And he ultimately fulfilled that promise of a throne forever from the house of David, a righteous king that would rule forever. You know, we look at this and we see in the covenant with David, the immediate benefit that God provided as being rest from his enemies and, and, and a secure life when God was going way beyond that to establish a righteous rule, a throne that would endure forever and be ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. It's a remarkable promise that God makes us, absolutely remarkable. And God has, has often been up to that sort of thing, often been up to those kinds of ideas to help us get an idea of what he wants to do in and through us. Not always sure we're going to see the results of what God is doing, but maybe we miss some of it because we don't think beyond the immediate. We don't think beyond tomorrow. And maybe it's time for us as we look at the scriptures to start asking God, well, what is the rest of the story you have in mind for us? And how can we contribute to fulfilling the prayer we so often pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Remarkable thing. Well, we're going to pick up some more of this story in just a minute, but I want to circle back to something else that I haven't mentioned, I don't think, for a while here. And uh, I think we need to mention it. I think we need to talk about it maybe a little more often than, than um, I bring it up. But Sunday's coming, or maybe you're listening to this on Sunday. And, and I've been thinking about this business of, of Sabbath. And, and I've often said uh, for quite a few years now that God has given us this gift of, 
of Sunday or Sabbath, we sometimes say. And the Bible is, is um, wise enough to recognize that, that not everybody can observe the Lord's Day on Sunday, which we have traditionally done. Sometimes there are responsibilities. People get sick and healthcare people have to take care of them, for example. So God recognizes that life happens, and, and he recognizes it's, that not everybody will necessarily be able to observe the same day of the week as a Sabbath devoted to him. But it is still is his gift to us because one out of seven days, God set aside for worship and for rest. And I've characterized that as a gift, and I'm convinced that it is. It's a gift we struggle to accept. I think we all understand that. But nonetheless, it's something that, since the Bible talks about it, we ought to come to grips with it better. So I want you to think about that a little bit in terms of expanding your vision of what God might have in mind for you. Uh, maybe the idea of Sunday needs some attention in your life. Maybe you need to, to rethink it a little bit. I have said, and probably will say for a long time, that on Monday, get ready for Sunday— and I do that to remind people that all of our life should be oriented to rest and worship on Sunday or whichever Sabbath works for you in your situation. Uh, I'm, I'm interested. Sometimes people say, well, I go to church on Saturday night. Great. I, I love that idea. I think that's absolutely terrific. I, I've thought for a long time, long time, that how much mischief would people have avoided if they went to church on Saturday night instead of going out and doing whatever they have done on Saturday night. You understand what I'm saying? How much mischief might we avoid if we went to church on Saturday night? See, God's people from the beginning, they observed Sabbath from sundown to sundown. So in our traditional way of thinking about it, that would be sundown on Saturday to sundown on Sunday. So if you go to church on, on Saturday night, great. Start your Sabbath then, and let it continue as a time, a season, a day, going into Sunday of rest and worship, set aside for God. So here, here's the, the question that I've been wrestling with as I've tried to get people to, to think about this, as I've tried to get people to realize that, that Sunday is, a, is an opportunity for us to reset or reorient our life to what is important. And we get caught up in a lot of things. It's busy. I mean, we have responsibilities. We have to do this. We have to do that. We have to take care of this. We have to take care of that. We all understand that. I, I, I'm not for a minute diminishing that. But, but what I think we need to come to grips with is how do we build our lives around Sabbath, not just treat Sabbath as kind of a, an interruption to our busyness, or, okay, that's a day we catch up on all the things we didn't get done in the other six, or, oh, good, I don't have to do this, so I'll do this. Um, how do we intentionally, and, and boy, we're swimming upstream to the culture, aren't we, when we talk about this? This will challenge you. This will stretch you. It stretches me as I think about how to, how to incorporate that in my life, because Sunday's a real busy day for me, obviously, because of church. But how do you treat Sunday as a way to help you reorient your life for the rest of the week? See, it's a gift. It's an oasis in the, 
in the uh, stuff of life. How do you treat it? So, so the question is this, how do you remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? What changes on the day you observe as Sabbath, we'll say Sunday because that's the day for most of us, what changes in your life on Sunday that helps you keep Sunday holy? All right, so let's think about what maybe could change and should change. Putting my pastor hat on, which I rarely take off anymore. I need to ask you, do you go to church? You know, that's one of the obvious things. You know, I hear people express thoughts about traditional values and uh, some sentiments of favorable feelings toward God. That's been pretty common all of my life. I've heard that. But I wonder how many of the people that, that respect God actually have a church and go to church every Sunday. You see, if we're going to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, that's one of the things that we can and should do, right? Right? Well, I hear you agreeing with me. I hear some of you feeling like, uh-oh, uh-oh, now what am I going to do? Well, here's what you're going to do. You need to find a church. I know it's not always easy. It can be challenging. I'm so thankful for our church here because we are a very receptive church to people. Uh, our, our congregation welcomes new people and their friends from the moment they walk in the door. And, and I'm regularly amazed at how they do that. I give them a lot of credit for that, really. But you need to find a church and, and push through the, um, the newness. Yeah, the first couple of times you go, it's going to feel a little different because you're not used to it. They will do things the way they do them. Maybe they'll use music you like. Maybe they'll use music that's not your favorite, but press through all of that. And as you're trying to sort out where you will attend church, ask yourself this question. Does this church follow the Bible? You see, we have often looked for churches that are close to us in our neighborhood. We can get there easily. Those days are gone. Uh, sorry to break it to you. Those days are gone. Right now, what we must do is look for a church that is closest to the Bible. It, it matters more than I guess I know how to explain because it's, it just matters to everything. If we don't follow what God has said, how do we expect anything to get better? How do we expect to find the answers to our questions, the solutions to our problems? So how do you remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? I hope you remember it by going to church. And if you don't, now you need to start. Next weekend, at the latest, find a church. Go to that church. If the first church you visit, just you're sure that that's not one that's closest to the Bible, then find another one. And don't give up until you find a church that respects the Bible and honors God and does what the Bible says. Now, the rest of the Sabbath, what else do you do after you come home from church? Well, you might have a meal with your family. I, I understand some of that's unusual to, for people to have a meal together during the week. Well, have a family meal. That's why people have, have celebrated Sabbath by making those connections. Sometimes it's an extended family meal. People get together 
they bring their contribution. They all share together and have a, have a wonderful time. Uh, for some of us, it may mean turning off the television. Imagine that you could keep Sunday holy by turning off the television or maybe it's turning off something else. I don't know what, what you do, but I want you to think about in your life, what is it on Sunday that God wants to give you rest from? He gave David rest. It was clearly a gift, and he gives us a gift of rest we call Sabbath or Sunday. What might God want to give you rest from on Sunday? So you go to church. You make that an important thing. You make sure everybody knows that. Nothing gets in the way of it because you are convinced that's who you are, and you need to be that person who shows up every week faithfully. And then you begin to think, what are the other things that I can put aside so that I'm not distracted? And that that would be ways for me to rest and reestablish the peace of God in my life. How do you remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Well, speaking about church, I should give thanks. And I want to give thanks to my church for their support of this program, their willingness to let me do it, their eagerness to provide it for you so you can find help and hope from God. I am the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. I don't know if you've heard of Cape Coral, but we are, depending on who you talk to, the second or third largest city in Florida, but nobody's heard of us. But we're here. We have a wonderful group of people faithful to God eager to serve him, and I want to thank them for all they do. If you're ever in our area, uh, come on by. If you want to visit us on the web, you can do that. But I'm thankful for my church, and I want you to find a church you can be thankful for as well. Well, in just a minute, we're going to come back, and we're going to take a look at this vision idea that God has for us when it comes to reconciliation. Some people think we can never resolve our differences. God says otherwise. We'll be right back. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There was a time when Americans could rely on the Fourth Estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcast, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome 
back and here we go again or still i hope you've had a few minutes to begin thinking about answering that question how do you remember the sabbath and keep it holy i'm absolutely convinced that for huge numbers of people that if we would reorient our lives around keeping sabbath keeping sunday the way god intended for us to keeping it as a gift of rest and peace a day for worship a day to turn some things off so that we can get our minds rested and ready for the week ahead i'm convinced that that could that could benefit more people in ways that we haven't even begun to imagine we've really gotten a long way from what sabbath used to be from what sunday used to be and i think it's time for some of us to recapture that vision and i hope you'll be the one i hope you'll lead by example in your community well, let's, let's go ahead now and look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 talks to us about some really important things when it comes to, to life and following Jesus. And I've been noticing that, that God has a big vision for something that people these days tend to think just can't happen. I'm a little amused that they think it can't happen because, I guess amused because... Um, well, we've always said amongst ourselves that God can accomplish anything he wants to accomplish. And I think God can help us with this too. You know, we sometimes think about how do we resolve our differences? And, and we do sometimes resolve our differences by talking them out. Friends will disagree on something and they'll talk about it and they'll come to an agreement. They'll find perhaps some common ground about something. And, and that's all good. Well, I, th I think that's, that's beneficial and helpful. On a um, more formal sense, and I've never been involved in this, I guess, thankfully so, there are, there are things like uh, mediation, arbitration that help resolve people's differences and, and work out a solution that's acceptable to all parties. But here lately, we've been hearing people talk about the, the problems that are going on in our country and in our societies, in our neighborhoods, and people are starting to wonder, can we really solve our problems. We're so divided. We disagree on so much. Uh, is there really any way for us to come to grips with, with, a, with a resolution? And I've been thinking about that, uh, and I understand there are some serious divisions. I also think, and I would encourage you to, to be alert to this, that some of the division is being manufactured before our eyes, and sometimes our neighbors are not what we're led to believe they are. You know, our neighbors are people like us, and I would suspect that among good-hearted people, there's a lot more common ground than we sometimes think. Now, to be sure, there are some black-hearted people. That's a little different question. But even then, is there is there any possibility that that things could be put together? Is there really any reconciliation possible? Well, God gives us a big vision for that in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. And, and I just want to walk down through some of the thoughts in here and help us come to grips with, with what it takes and what we can do to realize that kind of reconciliation and what God is talking about. And I want to remind us that the answer to our problems of division are found in the Bible. You know, we talk about this being one kind of problem or another kind of problem. Much of what's going on these days is a straight-up spiritual problem. So let's talk about it. Well, in 
in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, it, it begins to talk about the Gentiles who were also called the uncircumcised. And your English translation will probably use that word. That was uh, to distinguish them from the Jewish people who were circumcised. That was the mark that God had given them to set them apart as God's people. And so he starts this section with verse 11 and talking to these people who were mostly uncircumcised. They were Gentiles. They lived in Ephesus. It's the letter to the Ephesians. And so they would have been mostly Gentiles. Now he goes on to say in there that the, the Gentiles were without Christ. They didn't know about Jesus. Jesus came in a Jewish context. He goes on to say that Gentiles were excluded from Israel. They were foreigners to the covenant, and that's true. The covenant that God started with Abraham was for the Jewish people. And so the foreigners were excluded from the covenant, from Israel. And, and really what that means by saying it that way is they didn't have any expectation of salvation. So they were without hope without God. But he makes quite a contrast. Beginning in verse 13, he says, now, once you were without Christ, but now you are in Christ. He says to them, you Gentiles were once far away, but now you've been brought near. And the way that you have become people who are in Christ and brought near is by the blood of Christ. That's a lot to unpack right there, but it's very important. So these people who were once excluded from the covenant have now become part of Christ. They've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, what, what this is describing, and, and we need to always keep this in mind, this is describing a vertical and a horizontal reconciliation. Now, to be sure, these verses that I'm focusing on from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 they're mostly focused on a horizontal reconciliation, and you'll see that. But, very important, the horizontal reconciliation between two groups of people required a vertical reconciliation with Christ before that could ever happen. We want to we explore that a little bit because it makes so much difference. Now, one of the things that maybe will help us as we go forward, and so let's pick this up right here to make sure we understand that, that when we hear this description of Jews and Gentiles as two different groups. We, we understand that they were, but I'm not sure we grasp really what that meant in those days. Now, I just mentioned that, that Gentiles were considered outside the covenant. Well, that's true, but from a Jewish perspective, they were considered stubborn and unbelieving because they were outside the covenant. Because they were outside the covenant, they were viewed often with contempt. Uh, that's not a very reconcilable position. How do you how do you reconcile with another person who views you with contempt continually? Well, we're going to see about that. The Jewish people thought of the Gentiles as are you ready for this? Dogs. Dogs, you might say. Well, I have a dog. I like my dog. Well, I had one too. I liked my dog too. But but hold on a minute. Dogs today are household pets. They get away with stuff we never imagined we'd let them get away with until we've welcomed them into our house. And suddenly, all of our, this dog's never going to do that, goes away. Because they're our pets. Now, in biblical times, dogs were not 
pets. They were utterly unclean animals. We might think of them the way we think of feral animals today. They, they, were, they were not welcomed around. They were filthy scavengers that lived off the garbage that they could find laying around. They would even eat dead bodies that they found. They were utterly unclean, filthy animals. And people thought of them um, with revulsion. Well, they also thought of Gentiles as dogs. So you see, there's a real problem here um, of, of how to reconcile that. In, in fact, you might remember that Jesus even vividly described what was going to happen to him uh, at his passion, at his death, burial, and resurrection, when he reminded his followers that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. That was a horror because there was a huge separation between Jews and Gentiles. A fair amount of, um, well, as the scriptures say, and we'll get to that, hostility between them. They just were separated people. And, and now we're going to talk about how in the world could these people who were so separated become anything else? Well, in verse 14, we talked about the just before verse 14, we talked about the horizontal reconciliation, the reconciliation between people in this case, clearly talking about Gentiles and Jews, depending on the re vertical reconciliation of being reconciled to Christ. So in verse 14, the scriptures begin to talk about how Christ is our peace and how Christ united the two groups. Instead of enmity, they were now united at peace. And the basis for that reconciliation, as the Bible explain, explains, is Christ himself. He is the basis for that reconciliation. And it describes it this way. It says, Christ tore down the wall of hostility between them. Now, what's being described here is, is not simply an absence of hostility, but, but more of a, a, a genuine connection. Later in Ephesians, it describes the, the joining of these two groups as, as forming a new body. They were that integrated. They were that unified. Our bodies work with each other. Our arms and our legs, they work together. And that's, that's a picture of what was going on when he describes them as they've been united. They've been joined together. They were now a, a new kind of body. Also later in Ephesians, it talks about how they need to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. See, that's the admonition to these Ephesians, that, that we need to be forgiving to each other. That's the admonition to these separate groups that had hostility between them, that they needed to, to find a way not to be hostile, but to be kind and compassionate to each other. So it's, it's more than just the opposite, the, the absence of hostility. It's the intentional kindness, compassion, and forgiving of one another. Now we'll get back to that forgiveness too, because that's really a, a key to all of this. Also, we should we should point out that this idea of a wall of hostility, while they would have all understood that there was this stress between these two groups, um, that's maybe putting it mildly, but you understand, this wall of hostility could have also been a reference to the the temple divider that separated Gentiles and Jews. In the temple, there in Jerusalem, there was a court 
of the Gentiles and there was a court of the Jews. Now, the Jews could go into the court of the Gentiles, but the Gentiles couldn't go into the court of the Jews. There was a divider, a wall of, of types that would keep them out. And it was a serious offense for a Gentile to go where they didn't belong. They, they could have lost their life by going into the wrong court. So there was this clear difference. And so when the scriptures talk about how Christ tore down the wall of hostility, it might be referring to that wall because they would have all understood there was, there was a dividing line. People that would have been studying these scriptures would have remembered that idea. And it would have been would have really resonated with them as a as a real thing. So then it goes on, verse fifteen, to say how Christ, and this is my word, not not the um, New International or any other. I tried to come up with an idea because all of the translations are are good and helpful, but they didn't say it to me. So I said it this way: in verse fifteen, it describes how Christ transcended the law; he transcended its commandments and regulations. In, in other words, there was something that Jesus did that was different that changed everything in regards to the law. And so now in Christ, people are made new and unified. And so they have a new corporate identity that unites them in Christ. Now, it's not the same as the, the new man idea of Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this is the idea of a, of a new joining together and forming a group. So we could say this was the idea of the church. That, that they were united now in Christ, and it resulted in peace. So they would have harmonious relationships. They would be free from disputes because of what Christ had done and how his work had transcended the law and made it possible for these two groups of people that didn't have much good to say about each other could now get along. And, and it's a little hard to describe this idea. Uh, I think you'll get the idea for sure. What I call transcended the law, one English translation said he made it of no effect. He, in other words, he made the law of no effect. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Another one says he set aside the law. Another one said he, and the he here is Jesus, he abolished the law. Well, all of those are, are pretty good, but you can see how different they are similar but different. It gives you an idea how it's not real easy to come up with English words to talk about this. Uh, another English translation said that Jesus nullified the law, or, and this is what really helped me most, he, he rendered it inoperative. So there was something above the law about Jesus that meant the law did not function in the way it had. And so he now transcended all of that, rendered it inoperative, and because of that, he was now able to reconcile Jews and Gentiles to God. And they were able to come together as one body, functioning together, unified. Now they were reconciled both with God and with each other so that they could form this new corporate identity called the church, where there was peace and kindness and compassion. And how did they do that? Through the cross, Jesus put hostility to death. And, and it's real interesting, this, this really stood out to me, that, that the Greek idea here is that Jesus killed the hostility in himself. So all of the, the elements that would have made people hostile to each other, Jesus took on himself so that he could 
destroy that hostility, tear down the dividing wall, and people could come together. And so now, going on, he, he proclaimed good news of peace to both Gentiles and Jews. And now, through Christ, both Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. They're no longer separated, no longer strangers. And that idea is very important because in ancient times, to be a, a stranger, to be a foreigner, meant you were looked on with contempt. And so these people are not separated or strangers from each other at all. Now they are joined together in a special relationship to, um, to form this new, unique corporate identity. They were now fellow citizens, as the scriptures say, with the saints, members of God's household. Something profound had taken place. Instead of this enmity that we would expect between them, they have now been reconciled to God and reconciled to each other, to the point that they're members of God's household. And, and then it kind of sums up the idea in, in verse 20 that, that the foundation for all of this came from the apostles and the prophets. So it reminds us of the, of the foundation of God's story and work with his people and, and gives us a little insight into the, the help we can get from other sources, apostles, prophets. And then it says that Christ is the cornerstone. Now, most English translations use that word cornerstone. And most of us are familiar with the idea of a cornerstone in a building. It's put at the corner. It connects two walls. It, it's part of the foundational structure of the building. And so Christ is often talked about and understood as the cornerstone, part of the foundation, the chief cornerstone, we might say, far more important than apostles and prophets. He transcended the law in a way that no one else ever did or could. And, and we find that both remarkable and amazing and reason to give thanks. He didn't change the law. He didn't do away with the law. One of the reasons I'm not real fond of the word that one of the translations used was nullify is because that's not exactly what he did. And he didn't abolish it. That's not exactly what he did, as one of the translations say. But he really did, he really did render it inoperative because there was a new and better way. It didn't mean that we weren't supposed to follow what God said in the commandments. It just meant that there was something that needed to take place to lift us above all of that and take us beyond that. And, and Christ was the one. He was the cornerstone of all of that. I also found it very interesting as I looked at this that, that some people, be, I, because the Greek's a little vague there, and I'm not a, a Greek person, don't misunderstand me of trying to help you believe or make you believe that I'm a Greek expert. I'm, I'm, I'm not at all. I use the tools from the experts. But a number of places I saw this idea that instead of a cornerstone, the scripture might have been referring to a capstone. Now, a capstone, as I understand it in this situation, was, was the final stone that would unite an arch. So you'd have two columns connected by an arch, and the way they engineered the arch is that when that final stone went into place, it held the whole structure into place. It was the capstone, the final stone that completed the arch. Without that final stone, the arch would fall down, but with it, it could hang together and sustain itself. And so that's another really vivid image of what Christ is really all about, as either the cornerstone, the foundation, or the capstone that holds it all together. Use your imagination. I think that's why the Bible gives us these 
visual images to help us understand. So the big picture idea of reconciliation is here are two groups of people that no one had any expectation in any conceivable way of them being brought together. No negotiation, no arbitration, no nothing could have solved the problems that separated them. Nobody could have imagined that. But all of a sudden along comes Jesus and we discover that in Christ and talks about through the cross, it talks about in this passage of scripture that he did it by his blood, we discover that God was able in Christ to bring these two groups together. And, and I like to look at it this way. Instead of them coming together to resolve their differences, they both needed what Jesus had done. They both needed the saving work of Jesus. And when they looked not toward each other, but when they looked up to Jesus, they then discovered what they needed most. And when Jesus came into their life, forgave their sins, made them new, suddenly everything changed. And as the groups moved into fellowship with Christ, they discovered now we get along with each other. They had to look in a different direction. They couldn't look at solving their problems. They had to look at Jesus. Now, what's that mean for us? You are never going to resolve your differences with people by negotiation and talking them into something. You might come to better understandings. I get that. But the fundamental solution that the Bible has for our differences comes in forgiveness. You know, people don't want to talk about sin these days. And I and, uh, hear that. I observe that. I guess I, in one way, understand that. I think people don't want to talk about sin because they know they're guilty and they don't know what to do about it. Well, that's what's happening here and earlier in chapter two, is that Bible is telling us again that the remedy that we need is forgiveness of sin because sin is so destructive to us. And so when the Gentiles realized that in Jesus there was forgiveness of sin, there was a new and better way to live, there was a, a freshness to life and that they had access to God himself, they were in. Now the Jews had already been and always been God's people. But clearly, when Jesus came, he fulfilled all that the Bible had been talking about. And so now they realized they too needed that forgiveness of sins. And so when both of them turned to Jesus and found new life in him, suddenly everything changed and they could be united because the basis of their unification was not resolving their differences. The basis of their reconciliation was that there's a new and higher vision for our lives, and that's life in Jesus. And that's how you and I become reconciled with people in this life. People look in vain sometimes for someone to apologize to them. Well, I hope they do, and I hope you can find some reconciliation. But, but the first thing that you all both need is you need the forgiveness that Jesus brings. And then, separate from anybody else, when you have encountered the living Christ and he has made you new, and you realize how much you needed that forgiveness, then you can begin to realize how much your neighbor needs your forgiveness. And forgiveness is a huge issue because 
It is the key that unlocks rest and peace for so many people. And I want to leave you with that idea today that if you've been wrestling with a situation, a person, it's almost always a person that has offended you or harmed you in some way. The answer from the Bible, the reconciliation from God is found in Christ. It's found in forgiveness. You need forgiveness maybe for how you've treated or thought about them. Hmm. And you need to forgive them and allow Jesus to take care of that problem for you and trust him to talk to them and pray that they will be led to forgiveness. And then you can ultimately have that hurt healed, that relationship restored, reconciliation realized. A lot of people run away from that, but don't run away from it. Lean into forgiveness. It's the key. Ask God to forgive you and then haul off and forgive your neighbor. Well, I'm giving you a lot to think about this week. We'll be back next week. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, and we are going to have faith enough to forgive our neighbors. Amen. Amen.